welcome to another episode of the Duck of Minerva podcast. Today we have Philip Cunliffe, author of the recently released book, The New 20 Years Crisis, a critique of international relations 1999 to 2019. Philip is a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at the University of Kent in the United Kingdom, and he is one of the co-hosts of the Bunga Cast podcast. Welcome, Philip, to the Duck of Minerva podcast. Thank you very much for being with us. You've written a a very interesting and and uh, provocative book on the new twenty years crisis. And I wonder if you might just give us a quick rundown of the argument that you're making in the book. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, and I'm delighted to be here. So, the argument in the book is that we've um, it's a kind of a two-step argument, um, or at least uh, there's two kind of moves. The first move is to say that we've been through a cycle of liberal crisis or a crisis of liberal international order over the course of 1999 to 2019, and um, with many uncanny parallels to the interwar crisis. Um, the interbellum, as I call it in the book, the crisis, the kind of paradigmatic classic crisis of liberal international order from the first part of the 20th century, and from which I've deliberately, um, or I deliberately tried to echo E.H. Carr's classic critique of that liberal international order from that period. And much the same way as Carr suggests that the problems that the world was confronting in the late 1930s stemmed from decisions that had been made um, at the end of the First World War in 1919. So I say similarly that the problems that we've been confronting um, on at the start of this decade in 2020, at the end of 2019, um, reflect decisions that were made in 1999. And so that we've been through a, a series, I mean, a crisis of um, a crisis of international order, fragmentation, a decline, um, in ways that, like I say, kind of remarkably paralleled the, the classic case of the interwar period. And the two key points in 1999 that I think laid the foundations for the problems that we confront them at the moment are firstly, the high point of humanitarian intervention, um, the liberal model of war that we saw in Kosovo in 1999, when NATO um, bombed the um, Federal Republic of Yugoslavia as it was at the time, um, without UN authorization. And I think this set the paradigm for a series of conflicts that would become more familiar, have become more familiarly known to us as the forever war. Um, and then secondly, and perhaps in some ways more importantly, the foundation of the Euro. Um, so the Eurozone was effectively formed, though the Euro didn't start, um, wasn't issued as currency, but the Eurozone was formed from the unification of um, a number of different uh, national currencies into a single currency union in 1999. And I think that this um, in particular has obviously been uh, tremendously significant in laying the grounds for the problems that um, the European international order, the European Union specifically, has confronted over the last 20 years. That's the first move. So the second move then is to, after constructing this claim for a parallel um, decline of liberal international order, a parallel collapse of liberal international order into crisis, is to 
um, broaden the debate in the latter third or so of the book and to, to reflect on why it is that we seem to, why it is that we seem to be trapped in these um, repetitive cycles of liberal decline of um, why it is that uh, liberal order continues, seems to be as if it's in this constant process of um, cyclical disintegration um, and fragmentation and what that might tell us about the nature of our international institutions, the way in which we think about international politics and how we might um, be in a position to finally escape the 20 years crisis so that we're not trapped forever in this, um, on the brink of um, some cataclysmic collapse into world war and um, all the terrible kind of consequences that flowed from um, the end of the first liberal international order in the 20th century. So I mentioned um, this is quite a provocative book, and, and I clearly, from reading it, think obviously you intended to provoke. And um, I have to say, given my theoretical priors, a lot of your provocations uh, strike quite uh, deeply. So uh, I want to try to to push you a little bit on on some of these. So the book is clearly uh, the critique in the book. I think is two pronged, and I and I don't think there's any there's not, not, nothing particularly interesting in this in this assessment. One is that you're looking at the actual dynamics of international relations. And this is where um, the car framework, if you will, or the car model is, is helpful, but you're also taking aim at the, the intellectual study of international relations as well. And this seems, you use some pretty loaded language. So in the, in the preface on page nine, you say that you had resigned yourself to the fact that the humanities and social sciences had long ago become a postmodern swamp. Um, pretty, pretty loaded uh, language there. And so I guess in the first instance, I want to ask, well, who is your target audience for this book? Because with language like that, it seems as though you're uh, not especially interested in convincing most of your readers as to your perspective. Is that wrong? Um, I suppose I'd say, so I would say this. So if I could be, um, I guess uh, it's, a, it's a somewhat um, complex answer, but the appeal of the car framework is precisely as you say, that I think unlike um, the subsequent so-called great debates in IR, um, and unlike many other thinkers, um, what Carr does is in his critique um, that I've sought, that I've drawn inspiration from and I've um, sought to channel to some degree, is that he combines his critique of international politics, international institutions at the same time with the critique of the ideas and theories associated with those institutions. Um, and this is why I think it's, um, it served as, a, why, it's, why I chose it as a model for what I wanted to do. Because the other, what I, the other, um, aim of the book was to extend the critique of liberal international order um, from liberal internationalism as we conventionally understand it to also to um, extend it and to say that partaking in the um, these utopian assumptions of liberal international order are also 
um, that broad range of theories that we kind of can call constructivist and critical theory in international studies, and that they are um, as much, if perhaps not, if perhaps not, if perhaps not more so, um, implicated in the in our current kind of in the status quo and in the particular dispensation of politics, institutions, and law um, that we've seen over the last twenty years or so. And in particular, I wanted to extend the debate from the critique of um, US grand strategy, of liberal idealism in US foreign policy, um, of the failure of US nation building in Iraq and Afghanistan, of um, the coming kind of rivalry with China, um, the kind of the US centric focus of many of these debates around in liberal international order and to kind of stretch it to consider critical and constructivist theories, like I say, and also the liberal international order in the European Union and Europe in particular. Um, and so in that, in that way, I've sought to um, broaden the debate beyond the criticisms that have been raised in recent years by people like um, Mearsheimer and Walt of liberal foreign policy effectively in the US. So I wanted to broaden the debate beyond foreign the US foreign policy um, and to think about it in, like I say, kind of a broader sense. Insofar as the, I felt that it was necessary that the stakes have become so high, and I think the um, conceit um, within the discipline has become so entrenched that it required forceful polemic, modeled and, like I say, inspired by Carr, in order to cut through that. And I couldn't see any other way except to, um, to seek to achieve a similar kind of effect um, with the kind of the ideological and limited character, I think, of the discipline, or at least um, the way in which the discipline has um, come to be. And so who is it aimed at? I mean, I certainly hope that it will, in, that the provocation will um, draw responses, and I'm always happy to engage with anybody who's willing to respond to the provocations in the book. Um, but hopefully it's addressed to a new generation, um, perhaps to um, people who feel that the uh, outlooks and viewpoints and theories um, that have been cultivated over the last 30 years since the end of the Cold War are no longer appropriate to the kinds of challenges that we confront and also to a world that seems to be shifting away from unipolarity and what specific form that takes is unclear and I don't try to you know I try to avoid speculating too much about the precise kind of shape of um, the world order that seems to be emerging before our eyes but only to say that it will force a reckoning, um, a restructuring of our ideas about international politics in a way that will ultimately be much more brutal and um, abrupt and forceful, I think, than anything that could be achieved through, um, through writing, about, writing about it. So I hope, I mean, you know, the book is addressed to everyone in the discipline um, and in particular to um, students and um, junior scholars within the discipline who are looking to the future and dissatisfied with prevailing models, assumptions, and theoretical outlooks. I mean, what's what's the alternative, though? So you, you I mean, you're you're um, at least in the in the rhetoric of the book, your disdain for constructivism and critical approaches is is pretty manifest, but you also have much to uh, complain about with respect to um, what you call statistical, statistical esotericism, esotericism uh, 
Uh, so by that, I, I presume you are, are um, concerned with the rise as um, John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt have complained in the past, the rise of, of highly quantitative models. Uh, obviously, liberal IR theory, uh, you, have, you have no uh, use for. And so I'm, I, you've also, I recall at one point in the book, not exactly disparage, but uh, express some skepticism in the reemergence of neoclassical realism. So I, I, I'm curious as to what the, what IR theoretical frame would meet with the new challenges that you see coming out of the second uh, 20 years crisis from 1999 to 2019. It's a good question, and um, I suppose the the I mean, I don't delve in. Um, I don't spend any particular great time um, criticizing the um, quantitative and hypothesis testing approaches, as you've indicated. Um, that's been done elsewhere. Um, it's more my I take aim at them insofar as to say that I think it's in many ways the flip side of the critical and constructivist approaches. That, into some degree, um, hypothesis testing, political science, and critical slash constructivist approaches have divided, kind of carved up the discipline between them, and never shall never um, the twain shall meet. Um, but that they share similar kinds of assumptions about the nature of um, the political order under unipolarity, that I think are both being severely challenged. Um, I mean, to give an to give an example, for instance, in um, the particular the particular field through which I've spent um, in peace and conflict studies, say it's effectively the quantitative study of peace and conflict has effectively become the study of civil war, um, but a very particular, with very particular assumptions about the nature of civil war. Um, and they all essentially reflect um, uh, basic assumptions about power that could only hold in a unipolar world order. So I think that similarly to the way that critical and constructivist approaches, I think, they're going to find great difficulty confronting a world order in which there's much sharper competition for political power um, and in which the distribution of power is less, um, less concentrated in a single pole. Um, that too, I think, is going to affect quantitative um, and hypothesis testing approaches in a similar kind of way. So everyone is confronted by similar problems. Um, so I think I don't think that necessarily gives us any clear indication about which theoretical paradigm might be um, the most appropriate, um, or that it necessarily means that one theoretical paradigm wins out over another. Um, as you know, as you've uh, as you suggest, I I'm not convinced for a number of reasons. I'm not particularly convinced by um, neoclassical realism. I suppose the the approach that I would retreat to and think that it offers um, a territory which is um, safe enough for it to begin to kind of a process of intellectual consolidation and then perhaps begin to sally out from that would be a small r realism, by which I mean not a um, not drawing kind of grand um, uh, structural realism, huge kind of structural explanations of um, the broad dynamics of international relations based on you know, frameworks, say, developed by Kenneth Waltz and so on. I think those suffer from, you know, those uh, suffer from many of the criticisms that have been made at length in debates over the last 20, 40 years and so on. 
um, but I think a small r political realism, by which I mean a realism that's focused on the collective dynamics of political power, that's attentive to the reality of state power, to the reality of competition for political power, and how that um, competition for power saturates um, all kinds of um, assumptions, debates, institutions, and frameworks, and that we always have to fold those um, those kinds of debates, those larger kind of theoretical debates, have to be related to and folded back in on themselves to consider what the context is, what the power political context is in which they arise. Because I think that that um, has been absent from many of the debates which have um, dominated in the field and particularly in the critical and constructivist um, uh, domain, which is the main kind of place, the main area that I focus um, my focus my fire on in the book. So I don't think it, I don't think there's any kind of clear indication of which theoretical paradigm would be um, the one to emerge as a result of the 20 year crisis that I claim we've gone through. Um, but I do think that it's um, that perhaps a safe territory is one which is um, remind in which we're reminded of the some of the core assumptions of um, the study of politics itself, the competition for power, the competition for power between states, um, and the way in which this structures all of the um, all of the institutions, theoretical frameworks that are built on um, in international politics. So I would I would cling tight to Akari and to the basic framework of Akarian analysis to that extent. I, I'm, I'm curious about about this. Um, I'm going to bracket the your discussion of constructivism for a minute, uh, although I'm, I am going to come back to that because because I think as you might suspect, I disagreed with your with your portrayal and assessment of it. I won't, I'm not a, I don't consider myself a critical IR scholar, so I will leave that to others to defend or, um, or not. Uh, but on, uh, quite early on in the book, you cite Carr's lament that liberal utopianism, and, and you make the argument in the book that constructivism, critical approaches, as well as, uh, uh, what you mentioned, hypothesis testing and quantitative, quantitative uh, modeling, they all uh, rest on the liberal. Uh, they all rest on a foundation of liberal utopianism built on on unipolarity. Uh, you you cite Carr's lament that liberal utopianism suffers from an inability to provide an absolute and disinterested standard of conduct of international affairs. And I wonder if anything can do that, right? Don't you need a, a, a teleology of some sort? Don't you need a, even a uh, almost a religious um, uh, framework to establish a, an overarching disinterested good against which state behavior should be measured and uh, you mentioned quite often in the book the national interest or the interests of states and you argue against this idea in constructivism that identity determines interests uh, but even as far back as the early years of the 
Cold War, Wolfers argued that national security, which often national interest collapses down into, is an ambiguous symbol. And many scholars have argued, uh, often quite convincingly, that the national interest is really a contentless concept that we then backfill with ideas or principles or policies that are derived from ideational foundations. So can any theory satisfy or any approach satisfy Carr's critique? It's, um, it's a really good question. And I think the, so when Carr makes that claim, and this is the way I deploy Carr's claim, He's trying to trace the way in which um, liberal internationalism or the liberal idealism slash utopianism of the interwar period, the way in which it fails by the standards that it set for itself. And in this way, it's forced to take refuge from the failure of its own analysis and the failure of its own assumptions. And the typical response to that failure, according to Carr, is to retreat into moral condemnation of a reality that fails to fit the, pre, the preconceived idea. Um, and that this ends up in um, the kind of, um, in uh, the condemnation of people as too limited or um, perverted or um, uh, limit weak um, by their failure to live up to the standards that um, the utopian has set for reality. And so, it's less so much that I'm trying to establish a, a um, disinterested standard by which all could live up to or abide, but rather to say that a similar kind of dynamic has taken place um, in our own time, in which we see that the um, shock and horror at the way in which the liberal international order or international order in general has, um, uh, or the assumptions that have governed it for so long have crumbled away so rapidly in the last 10 or five years or so in particular, um, that it has resulted in moral condemnation in a kind of a refusal or an inability to adapt um, to the political dynamics at work. And that this ends up in this um, futile moral um, response rather than an, an attempt to understand or try to analyze what is um, actually occurring. So it's not so much that I think that that kind of descent, that that standard can be set um, but rather that the failure to um, the failure to establish that standard and the um, failure of that standard to perpetuate itself produces certain kinds of responses that Carr drew attention to and that I wanted to draw attention to. Um, I suppose the only standard so Carr you know suggests in throughout the book that um, that we'll condemn effectively to live between these oscillations between this kind of hubristic utopianism. Um, and this, um, the counterstroke of uh, the kind of sober realism, which checks for utopian hubris, and that we're condemned to live between the oscillation, uh, oscillation between these two approaches. And so that we hope that um, kind of sober realism can compensate for um, the hubris of utopianism. And then when it becomes, when realism becomes too arid, um, and too empty that you have, uh, it requires uh, to be recharged and rejuvenated by um, utopianism. And this is famously the kind of the latter part of the book, um, which um, where Carr kind of puts forward his own um, vision of what international order should look like. And I'm not satisfied with Carr's response, this idea that we're condemned, like I say, to live between these oscillations. 
Um, and I tried to do something different in the book rather than to say that. But the thing that I would say is that Carr kind of with um, some generosity suggests that the utopianism of his own day is down to the infantile. It's an inf a malady of um, a kind of a infantile malady. It reflects a discipline, an infant science, as he puts it, of, inter of international politics that lacks the kind of maturity and sobriety that should come through the process of realist criticism that he's offering. But it seems to me, you know, at the at this end of our liberal international order, um, already 20 years into the 21st century, that it's we can't kind of make we can't extend the same kind of intellectual generosity to international relations as a, as a discipline and to our international institutions that we can't attribute it to. It can't be seen that this, these problems can't be identified as a malady of, uh, of youth, of youthful exuberance, but rather they seem to be um, uh, indicative of senescence. And so this also is partly what motivates the um, sharpness of the critique that I try to deploy. Um, so the only kind of standard, I suppose, would be the reflexive one that I think Carr enjoins us to, which is to constantly relate how our debates and to think about how our debates interlock with an underlying distribution of power and the competition for power in international politics. And this is, I think, what differentiates the first so-called great debate, which was between um, Carr and realists versus liberal idealists, is that they connected their theoretical assumptions and their debate over the character of international order with the underlying structure of international order. And this is something that wasn't done in subsequent great debates in international relations. So um, I would say that that would be that would be what I would do. I think that's what Carr enjoins in in the book, the, his book, The 20 Years Crisis. And this is following Carr is what I would enjoin, that we always relate these, de these um, debates about the kind of grand debates about the nature of international order should be related to um, underlying uh, questions of political power and competition for power. And I think the, the, the problem is that many of the theoretical debates in international relations have drifted too far from um, considering the underlying question of state power and the competition for power. But this, this uh, infantile uh, perspective that Carr attaches to IR and and liberal utopianism in the interwar period doesn't that also attend realist approaches today you cite Walt and Mearsheimer at numerous points in the book in generally positive terms but as I recall there they reacted with something that looked like moral condemnation of the Bush administration's invasion of of Iraq. It was not something that made sense to them, either from a structural realist standpoint or insofar as they felt it appropriate to apply realism to foreign policy in a small r realist, pragmatic realist perspective. It made no sense. And so they retreated to, arguably, they retreated to moral condemnation that the Trump, the Bush administration was misguided and and being led astray by um, you know uh, neocon 
militant democratization, whatever their argument was at the time. So it looks very similar to the same kinds of dynamics that Carr was critiquing and that you are also, by citing Carr and in your own comments here, critiquing. Is that wrong? Um, so I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't nail my, I certainly wouldn't nail my colors to the mast of uh, Mearsheimer and Walt. I do defend them um, to the extent that I think they're, um, the way in which they've, they develop criticisms of um, Western and EU policy in Ukraine, as well as the criticisms over the, over the Iraq war. Um, and also I defend them as critics of permanent war, which I think um, is, um, is something which is to their honor and to their credit that they've been some of the most cogent um, that they've named it as um, you know as a as a malady of um, as a surfeit of a particular kind of liberal idealism, and I think, like I say, I think that's to their credit not to share in all the assumptions and um, to partake in the theoretical framework necessarily that they deploy, but I nonetheless I think there's no way to avoid the fact that they have been um, persistently critical. Um, and, you know, in so doing, as you suggest, I mean, you know, they've had to kind of um, make certain assumptions in order to rescue um, the theory and the way in which their theory perhaps doesn't quite fit the picture that they're trying to look at. But I'm not particularly vested in seeking to defend their um, theoretical outlook in its entirety. It's only to suggest that it has afforded them um, a, a degree of critical perspective that they that realists were said to have lacked in the last 30 years, um, particularly in Britain and in Europe. I mean, the kind of the ritual slaughter of realism is undertaken at the beginning of virtually every international relations course that any graduate student or even undergraduate would take. Um, it's seen to be kind of passe, crude, ideological and limited. And yet um, it seems to me that they have been among the most effective and consistent critics of the era of permanent war, which we find ourselves in. Whereas many of the um, people on the other side, liberal idealists, constructivists, and critical scholars, haven't been as um, cutting and as willing to um, as willing to cut so deep in calling to attention the way in which um, liberal idealism, well, liberal idealism such as human rights and humanitarianism, has served as a justification, effectively, for endless war. So I will, I mean, I will, you know, I will give credit where credit is due in the case of Walter Mearsheimer, though I don't, um, you know, I wouldn't seek to defend their theoretical outlook in its entirety. And as you suggest, I mean, I think, um, you know, that uh, they would still, to some extent, um, partake of the problems that we see, because Mearsheimer's, um, I talk about the lecture that Mearsheimer delivered, the E.H. Car Memorial lecture that he delivered in in Aberystwyth, um, Carr's alma mater in 2004. And Mearsheimer kind of, again, kind of portrayed the status of the discipline as some kind of intellectual forever war in which realists and liberal idealists kind of battle it out forever. And there's no, sometimes the line shifts a bit this way and sometimes the line shifts a bit that way, but we're stuck with this constant battle over the basic um, you know, assumptions and frameworks within the discipline. And that's something that you know, I don't think is, um, is particularly satisfying as a model for how we should understand what we're doing or how we might understand better the nature of international politics. So I'm not, um, I, wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't kind of um, put myself in that camp, but I would uh, give credit where it's due. 
Um, and as I say, I think our problems are those of senescence, which is to say a failure to um, properly, to be willing to jettison um, outdated notions, a willingness to jettison the, in the inherited legacy of the 20th century. Um, and I think in particular, a fear that, and I think, I mean, this is most kind of prevalent among, um, among uh, liberal internationalists or uh, liberal scholars, as well as critical and constructivist scholars um, to some extent as well, a fear that if we, that uh, change that is too radical um, or change that is too far reaching, um, if we seek to revise the inherited institutions of the 20th century, that we will inevitably end up recapitulating what we saw in the 20th century, which is to say world war, the risk of nuclear um, of nuclear war. Um, and I think that is in fact um, the greatest problem. And I think it's um, that we confront intellectually. It's a deeper problem than any particular kind of, um, you know, it's not something which is uh, unique to any particular theoretical perspective, but I think speaks to a deeper unwillingness to jettison um, the inherited institutions and intellectual and institutional infrastructure of the last century. And I think that clouds our judgment with respect to what's emerging in this century. But so that, that has me, that has me a, a little bit turned or turned around or confused. You spend a lot of the book sort of painting uh, IR and particularly constructivism and critical approaches with this utopian brush that they're grounded in the unipolar moment and that their approaches would be meaningless uh, in a multipolar system. I, I, I think there's a lot to disagree about there. You, you yourself note that constructivism emerges before the end of the Cold War, it's certainly at the end, but it, it emerges before the the uh, script of the Cold War has has clearly been concluded, and so it does emerge in a at least bipolar context. So it is the roots of that approach, and and also the roots of of critical approaches are are grounded in the late stages of the Cold War, when nobody thought that the bipolar system was going anywhere. So there's there's that point, but you're making the argument now that these approaches are simultaneously utopian that they and when the world does not accord to their uh, underlying utopianism they re resort to moral uh, 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 arguments or moral critiques as a sign of impotence uh, uh, and but simultaneously they are deeply grounded in the institutions that they that we have inherited at really as a product of the end of the Second World War. And as a consequence, they are too conservative with a small c. I mean, is, this, is, is there a disjuncture here or is it my failure to understand? So um, I don't think there's a disjuncture. Um, and um, I, I do use utopianism in a specific way. Um, so I should say, I mean, I should clarify that the the critique that I try to put forward it hinges less on the on the um, origins of um, constructivist and critical approaches because, as you say, um, you know, they develop in the seventies and eighties. Um, it's more to do with the status that they attain um, and the influence that they wield 
in respect of the discipline and also in respect of the way in which we understand international politics more broadly, which I think, you know, um, stretches outside of our disciplinary concerns to shape the way in which I think, you know, larger audiences, including um, the many, you know, many, many uh, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of students that pass through um, universities in the Western world and the kinds of the way in which that kind of um, shapes their outlook. So it's not to, I don't, I mean, the, my argument doesn't rest on the origins of um, when these theories develop, but more about the status, the way in which they come to express the distribution of power that is um, that emerges in the aftermath of the Cold War, and that there is in fact a deep complementarity between um, key assumptions in critical and constructivist approaches and the nature of power and the distribution of power in the aftermath of the Cold War. And it's this complementarity more than the um, origins of these intellectual approaches that I want to wish to draw attention to. And with utopianism, so um, I, I qualify the, um, I qualify Carr's notion of liberal utopianism um, with the with insights which are provided by the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek, and so Žižek draws attention to the notion that um, that we've exhausted all utopias, and that now we kind of we can we're kind of more chastened and humble and pragmatic in the aftermath of the 20th century that we've learned from all the kind of disasters to implement various utopias of various kinds over the course of the 20th century. And so that we're free of illusion. And he makes the case, in fact, that this, this notion that we're free of illusion, that we're kind of chastened and humble and pragmatic, is in fact the most dangerous, among the most dangerous illusions of all. And the notion that the status quo can be prolonged indefinitely, um, and that we must um, seek to prolong it in the face of political change, that is in itself is a form of utopianism. And so it's this qualified sense of utopianism um, in which I seek to kind of combine both Carr's insights about it, but also those of Zizek and also, um, I should also say Samuel Moyne as well, and his work on the human rights as the last utopia. So these, this um, qualified sense of utopianism in which um, the utopian is the kind of utopianism of the status quo the refusal to countenance the political changes that we've seen in the wake of the crisis, the economic crisis of 2008, um, and the assumption that um, this world, the status quo must be preserved at all costs. And so it's that, uh, it's that specific kind of utopianism that I think attaches itself to the inherited institutions of the last century and the attempt to prolong them and to preserve them in face of um, political changes that we see both at the international level and also at the domestic level. Yeah, so the, you, you talk about the EU and you have a whole chapter devoted to the EU and you're clearly quite skeptical of the EU. And um, you know, at one point you talk about the fanatical commitment to perpetuate the EU against the disintegrative forces gnawing away on its insides. And that, that does dovetail with the point you just made about uh, maintaining institutions in the face of change. But I wanna ask you, isn't that the nature of all political unions? I mean, we, in the United States, 
uh, we tend we seem to go through periodic crises of of legitimacy in which uh, you have states uh, either states or regions within the United States talk in varying degrees of seriousness about breaking away starting their own thing um, used to be uh, not long ago California thought well maybe we should just go it alone nobody really talked about it seriously, but it was in the air. Uh, Texas periodically says, well, we were a republic once upon a time, and our flag flies at the same height as the American flag, so we could go it on our own as well. And so isn't it the case with all political unions that they are constantly seeking to, uh, to reify and um, strengthen their legitimacy against you know, Fisiparius forces because various elements within those unions have different perspectives, different ideas. Uh, I don't want to say utopias, but they have different uh, ideas about the nature of the world and the way the world in which and the way in which the world should operate. And so the EU is not is not new here. So if we're willing to just say, okay, well, the EU is so twentieth century, and let's junk this thing because well, you know, it's gotten tough and uh, various member states want to get rid of the thing or various groups within member states want to get rid of the thing, then where do you draw that institutional line? Do you draw it in national boundaries? Is there any uh, a priori reason to do so? Why not allow the United States to disintegrate into various regions or states? Why not allow the UK Scottish independence is back on the agenda um, because of the Brexit vote. Why not allow the UK to disintegrate down into its constituent nations? I mean, where do we where do we draw this line if we're willing to just sort of say, okay, well, institutions just have to go in the face of change? Yeah, it's um, it's a great point um, and a great question. And I, my answer would be this, it would be twofold. So um, to, to reiterate the point that um, I the whole thrust of my the critique is to expand, to suggest that the failures of the European Union, um, the devastation that it has wreaked on the southern tier of the European Union as a result of the rigidity of the Eurozone in particular, um, the rigidity of a, a currency union without a fiscal union, without a political union, the economic consequences of that, um, stagnation, debt, um, astronomical youth unemployment, um, austerity, that all of that should be seen as much of a failure of um, liberal international politics in our era, as much as we kind of talk about the uh, you know, failures of uh, ostentatious nation-building projects in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. So I want to kind of um, front load that uh, critique of the European Union. And then with respect to, your, to, the, um, to the second or the point that you raise about isn't preservation of desirable political institutions of unions, uh, the, the, simply the nature of politics, I would differentiate the European Union from the other unions that you put forward there. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know, the unlike the US, whose national identity is, um, you know, uh, not in doubt, I think, in, since, the, since the Civil War, 
the European Union is explicitly um, conceived of as, a, in, as an institution that can only exist in the absence of mass politics. Um, it's conceived of as an institution that has been built in opposition to mass democracy, and therefore it always experiences mass democracy um, referenda, um, various elections or populist mobilizations at the domestic level are always experienced as a profound threat to its functioning and future. And so to the extent that the European Union has been conceived of as, um, as an institution that has sought to insulate decision-making from mass politics, it's very much a response to the 20th century, insofar as the problems of the 20th century are seen to be um, uh, mass politics, the danger of febrile mass politics, of mass democracy that becomes too unruly and disruptive, of nations that seek too much for themselves. And so I think it's a very, it's a politics of fear that is um, informs the functioning of the EU and aspirations for the European Union that's very distinct from, say, the aspirations of the, of the US as a union that are rooted more in the revolution. Um, whereas the European Union is rooted more in response to the horrors of the Second World War. So I would, I would, uh, I would say that the EU is a different kind of union. And the attempt to preserve it, to keep all these, it, unlike it's to keep different nations kind of crushed together in structures that are so uh, maladapted, so dysfunctional, and so, um, uh, so uh, cruel. I think in their in the way in which they dis, in the way in which they fail to function and oppressive in their consequences and have been oppressive and will continue to be oppressive, that it's um, that it's uh, utopian to continue to attempt to prolong it um, in the wake of the kinds of challenges that I think it's confronting at the moment and that it's going to confront. So I would um, you know I would safely say that the US is going to be around for a lot longer than the European Union is, and that the member states of the European Union founded before the European Union, I think, will also ad lib it. Perhaps not, you know, perhaps not in the form that they currently exist. I mean, you raise, you know, Scottish secessionism, it's quite possible, you know, Scotland could secede from um, from the UK. Um, but I don't think the I wouldn't put my money on the European Union as a viable political form over that of the nation state. Hmm. I, I mean, I, I guess, I guess my understanding of the European union, uh, differs, right? Because I've looked at the, uh, not, I'm no EU expert, but as an interested observer, there's certainly an evolution in, in terms of the institutions. Uh, we see the, in response to COVID, we see the first efforts by the EU to write uh, EU-backed loans that will be used to level up the southern states that you mentioned have uh, suffered under the under the uh, structural problems of a monetary union uh, that was uh, perhaps introduced prematurely for political reasons that also that that arguably uh, emanate from the end of the Cold War. But we also see the uh, really substantial effort by the EU Parliament to generate the kind of mass politics that you complain the EU is built to preclude. I've been in the EU on more than one, uh, during more than one uh, EU parliamentary election year, and the parties certainly make an effort 
to turn out voters to vote for EU parliamentary blocs uh, within their nation states. So there's certainly an effort there. So it looks like the EU is, is uh, trying to rectify at least some of these concerns or complaints. And that leads me to the alternative, right? So the EU was established, as you point out, in the wake of the horrors of World War II. And we don't have, or at least you don't put forward in the book, at least not that I saw, what's the alternative to the EU? I mean, is the, is the, are the European states worse off for having had the EU than they would have been otherwise? I mean, the counterfactual is very difficult to run through, but um, there's at least a plausible argument that they are not and that they would, their interests, whatever those might be defined, would be continue to be served by the improvement, refinement of the EU as an institution that uh, works to their benefit. And it's worth pointing out before I turn it back over to you that two of the states that get the most kicks out of poking the EU, Hungary and Poland, the leadership of those states looks very much like what you describe, pulling at the seams of a of the union, but the publics in Hungary and Poland, public opinion polling shows them to be quite fond of the EU. And so um, there's, I, I just don't think that this Fisiparius story is quite as clear cut as, as some of your writing suggests. Sure. So, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with you that when I talk about the kind of as, uh, these disintegrative um, fissiparous tendencies within the European Union, they don't or only really do they manifest themselves in popular, um, in popular hostility to the European Union. Um, and as you say, I mean, I think to, you know, to even with the kind of uh, these uh, theatrical games that are played out with certain um, populist leaders against the European Union frequently they themselves you know they they themselves are deeply interdependent and intertwined with the European Union and that I think is a, a case a case in point in Eastern Europe that partly the development of figures like Orban reflects processes of European integration itself um, the strengthening of executive rule is part of the process of joining the European Union over um, legislative rule I think is um, has laid the ground for um, some of the kind of populist politics that we've seen um, in Eastern Europe in particular. So, I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't um, rest my claims on the kind of theatrical contestation that we see occasionally within the European Union itself. Um, and like you say, the counterfactual is hard to, hard to run. But I would say I don't think the European Union has been, um, I don't think it's uh, for the benefits that we have seen over since 1992, say, I think there are some economists who've tried to run these um, counterfactuals as to try to identify precisely how much, say, extra growth, economic growth could be attributed to membership of the European Union or having a European Union um, on the continent as opposed to not having one. And um, as far as they, you know, as far as some of these economists can tell, it's very little. It seems to me it's uh, recreated conflict in addition to the kinds of um, problems of the of a, a monetary union, a currency union without a fiscal union. It's recreated all sorts of conflict and sharpened them. 
um, in respect of the conflict between the kind of debt prone southern tier and the more um, and the uh, wealthier northern tier of the European Union. So there's all sorts of fractures and conflicts which um, even if they don't manifest themselves in um, popular sustained popular opposition to the European Union, I think nonetheless they grind away like tectonic plates, they grind away at each other and there is no um, there is no visible, um, meaningful or coherent solution to these um, deep contradictions within the structure of the European Union. I would add, I think also, I think probably that um, the coronavirus crisis in Italy um, and the deep, um, the kind of the, the way in which Italian polls and opinion shifted in the perceived failure of the European Union to come to, to, to Italy's aid um, uh, when Italy went into lockdown um, early on this year. I think we've probably passed a turning point in respect of Italian, the Italian public's relationship with the European Union. So we might begin to see more of that sustained popular opposition to the European Union, although that you know, doesn't mean by any means that the European Union is a, on the brink of collapse, only that these contradictions can't be um, sustained or, or um, resolved, I think. And I think if we, you know, if we had, uh, you know, if they've had any opportunity for political creativity um, to uh, establish a political union, um, then surely that would have happened already in, the, you know, at least the last 10 years since the um, financial crisis, um, since 2008, since the Euro debt zone, the Eurozone debt crisis in Greece, 2015, 2016. And we've not seen that. Um, I would be more than willing to, um, you know, more than happy to discuss kind of what a what a meaningful political union in um, in Europe might look like if that was on the agenda. But it's it's never been put on the agenda. In fact, they've explicitly avoided, and it's a condition, in fact, of the European Union's functioning that it avoids these um, kinds of um, grand solutions. Um, I'm a skeptic, as you say, I mean, I'm a, a decided skeptic of the European Union, but I still retain some grudging admiration on the other side, at least for those on the other side, my grudging admiration is mainly for Euro federalists, because they at least have some kind of uh, redeeming nobility of purpose and some grand ambition for what they would like to see in Europe. Um, but the federalists and their political visions are in abeyance. The European Union is dominated by intergovernmental agreement more than federal, more than its um, kind of federal organs at the moment. And I think that reflects its particular structures. It's effectively a way for governments to insulate themselves from their citizens more than it is for citizens to meaningfully relate to each other. So I'm afraid I, um, I don't see the I don't see um, energy or, um, and I can't take the European Parliament as, I can't see that it meaningfully represents a demos. However, um, you know, however kind of um, effervescent some of the European election campaigns might be. Um, and I can't put, I'm doubtful and skeptical of um, the proposals or the efforts that the EU has made in response to the pandemic to issue some mutual debt, because it seems to me far too limited compared to the economic crisis that is going, that is already kind of lapping, um, kind of uh, coming for us in, in, in Europe and in the European Union in particular. Um, a lot of it also very strikingly, I mean, Italy and other, um, other uh, of, the, of the southern tier have refused the, um, the loans which the European Union has offered because of the conditions that come with them. 
um, the loans that kind of in response to the pandemic. And the mutualized debt is far from sufficient to meet the challenges um, that Europe is going to confront in the aftermath of the pandemic. So I don't think that the, I don't think I wouldn't, um, I don't think that these are uh, signs or portents of a, of successful functioning. It still seems to me very much in the grain, in the um, keeping in the groove of Europe's um, patchwork of crisis management um, that has been, that has uh, served European citizens so ill over the last 10 years. And I don't think we've turned the corner. I want to pivot um, to uh, two, I have sort of two, two and a half points to raise uh, in our last few minutes here. Uh, the first is your, your treatment of, of constructivism. Again, I, uh, I'll let critical, critical theorists um, uh, address your work as they see fit. I won't, wouldn't pretend to speak for them. But as a, at least um, a pretend constructivist, I, I was quite struck by your by your treatment of constructivism. It focuses, as you you are are um, quite clear, you focus on on uh, Alex Wendt's uh, structural approach to constructivism. In large part, you do uh, address Emmanuel Adler a bit. Uh, so obviously, the first point is that constructivism is quite a bit more substantial than uh, even two folks like Alex Went and Emmanuel Adler would would um, give you foundation to to address uh, but but I'm I'm quite puzzled by your sort of argument so on the on on here you've argued that constructivism is too too resistant to change it's too wedded to the structures that come out of of uh, the twentieth century, uh, but in the in the book, you you lodge the argument against constructivism um, again, a Wentian or went I guess a, a reading of constructivism via Went and Adler that it's uh, too focused on change that um, society uh, is and the international order really is at the mercy of or is a product of uh, transformative agency and that um, uh, social life is fundamentally malleable. And moreover, that the malleability goes in a um, in the direction of a sort of liberal utopian improvement. And I so absent from this con this uh, this constructive of constructivist theoretical story, at least in your telling, is, you know, any consideration of power, of stability. Um, so in the first instance, I find this, there's a, I think there's a tension or, or, or conflict here between constructivism as wedded to the past and unwilling to change or unwilling to recognize change in the 21st century, and that um, constructivism is positing that everything can really be changed on a dime. But I think that interpretation of constructivism is is really pretty problematic. It is true that constructivism is focused on change, uh, but I think all theories are focused on change. That's in the very essence of the social scientific language of variables. Uh, 
Um, but Wendt, even Wendt makes it clear that social structures can become sedimented and become very difficult to change and that oftentimes you need exogenous shocks to undermine that uh, sedimented nature and open up opportunities for norm entrepreneurs to, to change the nature of a social constitution. And you, you mentioned Fenimore and Sikic and their, their normative dynamics framework, but they're also talking about power. They also make it clear, as do a number of constructivists, that power comes into the equation. Um, norm entrepreneurs aren't just anybody. They're people who have a particular political or social capital who are able to get attention to their ideas. Um, they have a certain legitimacy. Uh, so it's not, I, I don't see it, and I think most constructivists would agree, I don't see it as though small states, you, you make the, uh, use the metaphor of small states running around the, um, running rings, maneuvering around the uh, clay-footed great powers or the um, first world great powers or the third world um, great powers, as it were, to promulgate new norms that were then, will then force these powers into a new social structure. And I don't think, I don't know of any constructivist who thinks that's what's going on. Uh, norm entrepreneurs are as likely to be uh, great powers who see an opportunity to um, move the social system that is the international system in a new direction that's beneficial to them. So you have power entering in in a number of different ways. Uh, constructivism, I mean, uh, securitization theory is similar, right? Who gets to make security claims? Well, it's those who have political power. So I, I, um, I don't know. I wonder if you have any reaction to any of that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I suppose I'd say, I mean, you know, I take your point, obviously, that um, social science is concerned with change. And that is the very kind of, you know, the very basic notion, like you say, of variables. I suppose, the, but the question, you know, equally can be turned back and, you know, is it uh, how many, what kind of variables are we including and how far do we uh, assume that they vary? Um, and uh, I suppose what I would say is, uh, you know, if went, um, if Alex went and other constructivists admit of exogenous shocks um, that uh, transform kind of um, political opportunities and grant different kinds of uh, lay the ground for the possibility of change, then I suppose the I think what we're seeing at the moment is, I mean, you know, the tacit kind of assumption there I think is in um, the notion that the uh, we had, you know, we see a transformation of the system that allows for, uh, that has given kind of constructivism and critical ideas more prominence than they had hitherto. And I think what we're seeing at the moment perhaps is an exogenous shock that is leading to um, calling into question constructivism rather and um, critical ideas. Now I don't, you know, I don't, um, I say kind of in the book that um, there is always the risk in undertaking these kinds of critiques that, um, in trying to go for the root, which is what I try to do in the book, you end up kind of slashing through um, some lush and beautiful foliage on the top. And I wouldn't wish to take away from the sophistication and subtlety of, um, of many constructivist and critical critiques. But um, like I say, there, you know, if you do want to get to the root, then inevitably it involves to some degree um, uh, turning away from some of the, you know, or even, and it's not to deny the, like, you know, the power and interest of many of these ideas, but nonetheless, I think um, the roots 
need to be addressed and they share this you know if the if this kind of lush foliage on top um we shouldn't be shouldn't forget that it is uh, that you know they all share a common root and i suggest that that root is sunk in um or has been sunk in a unipolar distribution of power and in um, assumptions of a liberal international order so the notion of constructivism and change um you know the critique that i try to develop is that constructivism is the provides effectively expresses a conceit of a unipolar world order so this freewheeling image of um, the uh, this uh, the tremendously kind of extended range of social transformation and the malleable the basic kind of plasticity of social and political life that had been undreamt of hitherto and that wasn't suspected prior to um, the constructivist critique it seems to me that expresses essentially a very particular like I say, a very particular dispensation of power, and that it meshed very well with um, the hubris of uh, Western and US foreign policy in the last 30 years since the end of the Cold War. The notion that they were able to um, engage in these enormous projects of social engineering, that they would be able to transform all of these kind of um, post-conflict countries, and in the case of the European Union, to um, transform effectively to transform the nation state into something else to fuse it into this um, this new kind of supranational form of government so the the claim is is that there the idea of agency misunderstands the nature of power into which it's integrated and in particular a unipolar distribution of power so it's not to say that um you know far um, far from saying that all constructivists are uh, don't try to reckon with power or that they um you know or that power never enters into constructivist analysis but that i think it's fundam fundamentally misconceived and i would um you know notwithstanding uh, what you say about the about the way in which norm entrepreneurs are um the concept of norm entrepreneurs and constructivist research it does seem to me that there is a bias towards a particular kind of norm entrepreneur you know when we talk about norm entrepreneurs um where you know the bias it seems to me in the scholarship is towards the fleet-footed nimble ngos um the european union perhaps the kind of um the social democratic scandinavian states um, and this indeed reflects the kind of the good norm bias which has been widely identified as a problem in constructivist research and even the term you know of norm entrepreneurs it seems to me to um to speak to an under again kind of underlying uh underlying uh, assumptions about power and change so in this case it seems to me to be is a remarkably neoliberal understanding of the nature of social change the fact that we that the fact that we would use the language of entrepreneur so whereas in the kind of in the realist idea is that um states are effectively um that they are that the international order imposes constraints on the behavior of states similar to the way in which the market imposes constraints on firms constructivists came with a model of entrepreneurs a very kind this kind of um, distinctively neoliberal understanding of the kind of actor that would be able to transform the system rather than having to simply um, endure the system um, in the kind of in the old-fashioned um, understanding or the old-fashioned uh, metaphor and so and that seems to me to speak to a very particular period in international politics that's coming to an end and this is what i wanted to draw attention to the way in which um the scope for change was um 
overestimated and the way in which the underlying character of power was misconceived. Well, I think we probably would have to uh, agree to disagree. I, I certainly agree that there has been a tendency of scholars to focus on the so-called good norms, um, but that's not inherent to constructivist uh, ontology or theory. It is a product of the or the um, the research agendas of the scholars who have deployed uh, constructivist concepts and theories to in investigate the international system. And there are those who have used those same theories and concepts to investigate the dark side or the so-called dark side, the um, norms that I think most of us would disagree uh, with or who, who would not want to live under and understand the promulgation of those. And those, it's the same, right? It's in the same uh, terminology of the norm, norm entrepreneur um, and the role of of power, I'm I I recall uh, Samuel Barkin's work on realist constructivism, um, which is an application, obviously, of constructivist theories and concepts, but in the in um, the sort of the realist vein. So I I guess my uh, counter argument to you, and and I don't. I, there's probably not much fruit in, in pushing this further, is that uh, I would say you misapprehend the root of constructivism, um, confusing it with the application by, by scholars. And I would just, I think I would leave off on this point, and of course you're open to, to a rejoinder, but I, I, um, I, Surgeon Vucetic, uh, Bentley Allen, and, and Ted Hoff have not too long ago published a piece in, in I.O. in which they look at um, the propensity or the possibility that China would assume uh, sort of great power status uh, commensurate with that of the United States. And at the heart of that is this idea that uh, China is able to promulgate ideas uh, that other states are willing to buy into uh, rather than uh, resist. And they make the argument that China isn't going to be able to assume the same kind of positionality that the United States has because they don't have ideas that are going to appeal to other states. And, and this is not um, raw military power, certainly, but power is more than uh, just raw military coercion. If it were, then then um, the world plays out very differently, right? And I don't, I'm not suggesting that you are making the claim that it is simply raw military coercive capability. So I, the constructivism, and that is certainly a constructivist uh, uh, piece of scholarship. So I, I just, I think you've, you're mistargeting your critique and it would be one thing to say, well, you know, constructivist scholars have tended to use their underlying theories and concepts in this way and they should think about doing it differently, but it's quite a different to say, well, the whole thing down to the roots is uh, tainted by or, or um, distorted by this uh, 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 liberal uh, utopianism and uh, rooted in the, um, the unipolar moment. But anyway, you're welcome to, to respond to any of that if you like.
Uh, well, I guess only to say I, I would say, um, uh, I, I guess we will have to agree to disagree. I would, <laughs> respond, I would respond by saying, I guess, it, you know, I would see it as not accidental. So I don't, you know, I don't think it's perhaps, a, you know, just an individual failing of the constructivist scholars. It seems to me that um, to some extent, the, these biases are, you know, they tell us something about the nature of the underlying theory. Um, you know, uh, which, so I think, you know, and we should uh, kind of be willing to draw kind of conclusions and inferences from that. And so, I mean, I wouldn't, nor would, and I, I don't think I, I wouldn't, uh, I would also doubt China's capacity for international leadership. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it's because it seems to me that um, it's partly also reflective of the fact that it's, uh, that we live in a more conflictual, in a world in which power is itself more conflictual. And by, very, by the very fact that power is more contested and that we have kind of growing geopolitical rivalry that makes um, uni you know, universal claims more difficult by definition. Um, so, and certainly more difficult than they have been for the last 30 years in which um, liberal ideas of human rights, um, liberal democracy, humanitarianism, globalization, and so on have tended to, um, tended to prevail with very little kind of challenge or um, substantial contestation, I think. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't disagree about um, about the uh, weakness of Chinese um, of the appeal of Chinese great power, but I think that reflects neither um, neither kind of just raw military power nor um, uh, you know kind of a straight vindication for constructivist analysis, but I think rather simply reflects the very fact that um, power and authority is contested. Um, in international politics in a way that it hasn't been for a long time. And I think that forces us to um, reflect on the way in which we craft our theories and hopefully will stimulate um, will stimulate uh, stimulate more more finely grained and more accurate pictures of international politics in future. I mean, that would certainly be my hope. So uh, two more points from me. I, the book is is uh, uh, the artifice of the book is that there is a second or maybe um, third or fourth or, or whatever um, uh, 20 years crisis starting in 1999. And, and you mentioned that uh, you root it in 1999 because of the Kosovo intervention. Um, and I find that I find that quite curious. You, you make the point in the book and you did here as well that the coast you believe the Kosovo intervention, is the basis for the subsequent uh, forever wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it seems to me uh, that's a contestable, contestable claim. Uh, and, and Kosovo in particular strikes me as a, as a quite, um, I don't no, it wasn't it wasn't a uh, small matter for the people in in the Balkans, but um, doesn't strike me as the as the 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 watershed moment that you're holding it out to be. Uh, I I talked with a couple folks who know about the region. I am no Balkans expert at this point. Listeners are probably wondering what I am an expert in because I keep saying I'm not an expert in any of these things, but. Uh, um, you know, you, you make the argument that this uh, Balkans exercise or the in involvement of uh, NATO in the conflict was a watershed because it was undertaken without UN approval. 
and uh, that it was uh, undertaken uh, sort of the there was a certain arbitrariness to it. The Albanian, there was an Albanian rebel group that was, that the uh, federal Yugoslav government, which was, as I understand it, dominated by the Serbs and um, in particular Slobodan Milosevic, uh, were seeking to put down and NATO got involved and it was really a sovereign thing that nobody should have gotten involved in and this was, this was the sort of the, this is the height of, neoliberal, utopian, humanitarian intervention. And I talked with a couple of folks who know about this area and they said, well, that's, you know, there's, there's actually a pretty substantial amount of evidence that Milosevic was planning on doing a lot of really unpleasant stuff uh, bordering on, if not uh, transgressing into the realm of genocide. Uh, certainly Human Rights Watch seems to believe that was the case. Um, there was the reason that there was an Albanian rebel group is because of the predations of the federal Yugoslav slash Serbian military in the area. And so if we take that perspective, the intervention isn't, isn't really all that interesting uh, from the standpoint of a, of a watershed moment. It looks very similar to you know, the northern and southern no-fly zone operations, which, as I recall, were also not authorized by the UN specifically to protect the uh, Kurds and the Shia in Iraq after the 1991 conflict. And so it looks like uh, of a piece in terms of a pattern of the U.S. and the West, NATO, trying to come to terms with how do they use their militaries in the post-Cold War era, and not something kind of new or, or watershed. And if we take away Kosovo, then does the, does the, um, uh, the artifice of the book fall apart or, or does it hold up anyway? Yeah, thanks. So I suppose, I mean, I would say, I'd say a few things in response. Um, it's, uh, as I make the claim in the book that Iraq has been the great alibi for the discipline. So I think everyone kind of, or virtually everyone agrees that Iraq was a terrible mistake and that the consequences have been terrible. Um, but in that kind of moment of um, uh, kind of moral self-righteousness, we um, overlook and refuse to kind of think more deeply about the uh, deeper context from which Iraq emerged. Um, so, um, I think, I mean, Kosovo is still, and I think this is why, I mean, not you know, I'm not sure that I'm claiming it's a watershed moment exactly, but that it's important insofar as it's, um, in that it sets the precedent. And I think, indeed, it still occupies, it allows for this, uh, for perpetuating this illusion of um, good and just wars that can be fought for liberal humanitarian purposes without um, without fully integrating or being cognizant of the um, of the long-term kind of political consequences and so I think that is um, Kosovo certainly kind of uh, is still um, you know belong still has this halo effect of um, of a good liberal war and that is this is something that I wish to contest without denying for one moment um, the uh, the cruelty and the um, the cruelty and excesses and uh, you know all the atrocities of the counterinsurgency campaign waged by Milosevic 
against the Kosovars, but at the same time, I would deny the notion of, um, I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a critic of humanitarian intervention um, already, but I mean, I would add to it, I would deny, I think this uh, idea that we can, ex you know, carve off some good, some good just wars out of the um, legacy of the last 20 years, 30 years, and identify them as better, it seems to me is, um, is uh, dangerous and naive. And particularly because it seems to me, like I said, I don't think, um, I think Iraq, the invasion of Iraq in 2003 would have been much less likely or much more politically and legally difficult were it not for the precedent set by Kosovo. Um, so the grand kind of liberal civilizational claims that were made for Kosovo, um, that it was a war between good and evil in the famously in the language of, Hugh, of Tony Blair, um, that it was conducted without UN authorization, um, that it split the Security Council, that seemed to me to set precedents, it, that it helped to um, lay the ground for, it seems to me, a very dangerous and insidious idea of sovereignty as responsibility, this very it's paternalistic notion of the um, role of government, um, and also um, the important kind of, um, the other important element of uh, that it uh, uh, kind of motivates uh, an argument in my book is the precedent that it set for Russian revanchism, which I think is also frequently overlooked. So Russian revanchism is frequently seen as kind of one of the great kind of problems in international politics um, of the last 20 years. And um, what's striking to me is how closely um, the Russians have justified um, their military interventions and their um, flouting of the sovereignty of neighboring states, uh, Georgia, Ukraine, most obviously, how they've done it on the precedent established by Kosovo, justifying it by reference to Kosovo. So I would say, I mean, I think Kosovo is um, significant um, as, a, as an international marker of a particular kind of um, naive liberal uh, humanitarianism and that it sets in motion um, significant, uh, you know, has significant after effects and ripples that, need to, that we need to pay attention to, even if the conflict is of a lesser scale than, say, you know, what would happen subsequently in Iraq or Syria. And I certainly wouldn't deny the, um, the importance of the no-fly zones, like you say. I think um, Andrew Basevich has, um, I think, very accurately, the military historian Andrew Basevich has very accurately characterized them as air occupations, um, and that those no-fly zones over the 1990s also laid the ground for the subsequent invasion of Iraq in 2003. So certainly significant. Um, but I think Kosovo bundles together a number of things in a very particular way that make it important. Um, the, and in particular, the, um, like I say, the kind of enormously grandiose inflated claims of uh, being able to wage a liberal humanitarian war um, without integrating very basic questions of, um, you know, politi old-fashioned political realism into thinking through the consequences of what that war would lead to, um, both, both in the region and further afield. I don't think, I mean, I don't think that even if, you know, even if taking a, I mean, I'd like, so I, I've made the case for why I think Kosovo is so significant, but I don't think that taking it away necessarily um, kind of irreparably damages the artifice, the artifice of the book, because um, part of the claim of the book is it's in, is itself the very, to try and um, encourage the reader um, to kind of, for us collectively as a discipline, as scholars, students, lay people, um, citizens, whoever, thinking about international politics, 
um, to encourage us to reflect on the ease with which we um, can construct the artifice of 20-year crises already. So the very fact that it is so um, easy to construct the artifice of a 20 years crisis, that we see these kinds of recurrent um, fears of the collapse of liberal international order, of the prospect of um, fascist, of resurrecting fascist authoritarianism, the constant fact that we always that we always seem to be on the uh, you know kind of um, in danger of appeasing dictators, um, in danger of um, on the brink of some grand kind of civilizational calamity on the pattern of the 20th century. The ease with which these um, we can motivate these kinds of analysis and justify poly political responses around it. This is what I'd like to draw attention to. So, I mean, even if people would quarrel with the way in which I construct my claim of a 20-year crisis, um, I would like to, you know, I would hope that they would also be prompted to consider um, why we keep on seeming to repeat them, even if they disagree with where I draw the, you know, where I draw those lines and um, my claim for a 20 years crisis. So I think I would like people to consider about what it is about our institutions and our outlooks and politics that means that we constantly seem to be um, trapped in the 20th century effectively. Um, trapped in the um, in the inherited kind of uh, the inherited ideas of the interbellum um, and how we might escape them and that is ultimately it's less to um, it's uh, by kind of critiquing by providing this critique it's very far from uh, wishing to trap us in the 20 years crisis it's quite the opposite I would love to escape it um, and that would be what I would ultimately hope my readers would take from the book well I think that's an excellent place to leave this conversation, at least for now. So thank you very much, Philip. I really appreciate you appearing on the podcast and for humoring me despite our differences. I think it's uh, a, quite a, an enlightening conversation, or I hope it's an enlightening conversation for our listeners, and I hope uh, it was moderately enjoyable for you. It was been tremendously enjoyable. Thank you so much for having me on and for um, such pointed questions um, uh, that don't shy away from, from disagreement. I appreciate it, and I, I, hope, um, I hope your listeners do too. Well, thank you very much, Philip. Thanks. of Minerva.